If you love Push Black's Black History Year, you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little-known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Year feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1966, while Marvel Comics was debuting their first black superhero, the Black Panther, the world was also introduced to one of the most influential black power organizations of all time, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. The black nationalist group rose in direct opposition to the police brutality that pummeled members of nonviolent civil rights organizations. They demanded citizenship rights as well as economic and political power for our people, and they stopped at nothing to ensure it. This is Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. Created in the segregated and poverty-stricken streets of Oakland by Huey Newton and Bobby Seals, the Black Panther Party would spread their influence across the country as satellite chapters were established in South Los Angeles, Detroit, New York, and Chicago. It was in Plainfield, New Jersey, though, in 1971, where our guest, Ashanti Alston, joined the Black Panther Party, radicalized in the wake of the 1967 Newark riots and the assassination of Malcolm X years earlier. Ashanti was politicized at a young age, and his growth continued through the Panther Party, then the Black Liberation Army, then his incarceration, and now his work honoring the sacrifice of political prisoners in the name of Black liberation with the Jericho Movement. Check out my conversation with Ashanti Alston on the history and future of Black political thought right after this look at the global impact of the Black Panther Party. The impact of the Black Panther Party extends far beyond these United States, their revolutionary example inspired oppressed people all around the world, in countries such as India, New Zealand, and China, to rise up and fight back. From the aboriginals of Australia to Buddhists in India, the 1970s saw inspired marginalized groups form their own Panther parties to fight the system. Founded by first-generation Pacific Islander teens of immigrant parents who were threatened with deportation, police brutality, and economic discrimination, the Polynesian Panthers peacefully applied the Black Panthers' ideologies to enact change. Established by West African and West Indian immigrants, the British Black Panther Party's struggle was different from the American parties who embattled a racism embedded into law. The BBP's fight responded to anti-black and anti-immigrant sentiment all around the UK instead. Mizrahi Jews in Israel, who descended from North Africa, Central Asia, and the Middle East, were also inspired by the Black Panthers. When Israel was first established, immediate discrimination was thrown at non-European Jewish people. 
exiled to deplorable neighborhoods and low-paying jobs, the Israeli Black Panthers began their fight against Zionism, a fight that persists today. The Black Panther movement influenced the world, exposing multitudes of racism that exist outside of America. With Pan-African principles as guideposts, Black liberation became a global issue and a global fight. What does Black liberation look like to you? I learned that Black liberation is an evolving process, how we see it and how it should be for any individual. Because the more you learn is, is that your understanding of what that means, and it's not just two words to take over your communities, uh, whatever those institutions are, political, economic, cultural, uh, we have to be able to envision taking it over. Coming into the Black Panther Party, that vision of, um, of what liberation looks like continues to grow. The difference with the Black Panther Party was that we was solidifying a certain understanding about a by any means necessary approach, which came down to meaning we would be willing to defend all that we could gain into taking back our lives under this racist empire. So now black liberation becomes more than old school nationalism. It becomes something different. It begins to reject uh, old concepts of nation, nationalism, black liberation. It's more than just a political economic thing. And to be able to see how Past efforts excluded people, that it was tended to be very male dominated. And that meant that even my readings of feminism uh, began to help me expand and to be able to see who has been left out. So now liberation becomes more holistic, more total. And there's now even a greater sense of urgency to make sure that those who are really trying to make this struggle happen uh, be willing to change their lives in ways that they never imagined. I got to deal with my sexism. I got to deal with my depression. I got to deal with the other person's ego. I got to deal with all of that at the same time that the different versions of the counterintelligence program is out to destroy any efforts that we make to be free, you know? So, I, I mean, that's kind of a long answer, but it's my constant desire to want to know more. And even when knowing more means I got to challenge some deep things within me and help others to see the deep things within them that can destroy our best efforts to pull ourselves together into that kind of liberation force that can actually free us under this empire. I appreciate that. And I, I can see how your perspective started out in a certain way and has shifted over time based on a deep study and experience. I'm curious, what was the first formation, political formation that you were a part of? Let's take it back there. I, I kind of consider my entry into the liberation movement around the age of 13, 14. 
Um, and that is, that, this is the 1967 rebellions. And I, I'm from Plainfield, New Jersey. Plainfield is a small town. But um, during this massive uprising in different cities, uh, especially with predominant black populations all across the country, Plainfield had it had had its uprising. And just very quickly, uh, unique about Plainfield is that brothers and sisters had found out that there was a gun manufacturing place outside of the city. Uh, they were able to break in there and bring back crates of M1 rifles. They actually ran the police out of the back black community. School year starts, and this was just six days now, but when the new school year started, that sense of black power, that sense of nationalism was widespread. And we didn't have black history. And so the, the students in the high school and junior high school, we marched to City Hall and demanded that we wanted black history. And we actually won it. So it was again, this thing about the black power, black nationalism were telling us what we could do instead of hearing that narrative about what niggas can't do. And I'm not, I don't know if I can use that word, but that whole kind of mentality about what we can't do, who we are and all the negative senses that go with that, that started to just break down. So the first formation actually was us pulling together this march on City Hall. Then after that, and, and it didn't even come under any name, but now we're meeting down at certain community centers, you know, to kind of continue uh, to raise consciousness, to hear speakers uh, and stuff like that, and to begin to fight in other areas. Then later, by our junior year in high school, we hear about the Black Panther Party. So that the Black Panther Party was the first one that we actually consciously joined, specifically understanding what this was about. And um, and that's where we went from there. So you said this was about 67 initially, then a couple years later. So this was uh, at the peak of the civil rights movement that was taking place across the country you were attracted to the part of the movement that was more focused on self-determination, more focused on control of the community. What made it so you were led in that way as opposed to what I think the mainstream was trying to put as a safer option, which was the more integrational assimilationist approach? I, I mean, I actually think, um, um, at least my understanding also, the civil rights movement at the time, like if you're dealing with like 69, 68, 69, the civil rights movement's effectiveness was probably on the decline and the black power movement and that kind of consciousness was on the rise. Um, you've seen, a, you would see the growth of a lot of black nationalist organizations, black cultural organizations, um, you'd be exposed to the newspapers and the speeches and the stuff like Stokely Carmichael, H. Rat Brown, and voices like that. Um, and us being able to understand the civil rights movement, and, and this may be more of an, a northern urban thing, or at least an urban thing, urban experience with a lot of young folks like myself and others, we, we wasn't that keen on the kind of uh, struggles of sit-ins, marches, where we're just waiting there to be attacked 
you know, uh, washed down the street with water hoses, spit on and all like that. Not that, you know, they didn't have their effectiveness and 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 you really understand them. You got to respect it. But many of us wanted to fight back. Uh, we wanted to to know that it was right to fight back, to not accept that. So when we heard about uh, first the voices of Stokely Carmichael and Ashraf Brown, but then the Black Panther Party was actually uh, one of the early groups to just present themselves in an armed way. You know, many of us was seeing that as I want to join that. I want to be a part of that. They stood up. I remember them during the during the uprising when they was fighting back and taking over things. And that was definitely me. And that's definitely, you know, some of my comrades. Uh, and we were all high school students and, and friends at the time. But um, we wanted to know more about that Black Panther Party. And and it was a critique of the civil rights movement because um, we felt like the civil rights movement was asking too much. It was begging too much. It was wanting, willing to make compromises with forces that was just totally um, unethical, evil. I mean, that you could not really trust after all these generations of their uh, one line, we are in charge of the world, we white folks are in charge of the world, and that's the way it's going to be. We wanted to know we could fight back and we could win. And television at the time did play a part because it ain't but, but a few channels, but we was able to see what was going on in Africa, Asia, Latin America. We was able to see the, the Vietnamese fighting back against this massive empire and people were winning. And Malcolm had always said, stop seeing yourself as a minority. We're not a minority. We're the majority people of color. And that that helped us to see how how we had kind of locked ourselves into a mindset to only operate from a minority perspective. And joining the Panther Party allowed us to read more, you know, and then the, the concepts of guerrilla warfare came in. And we was able to see that the, they, those were the weapons of the weak in the fight against the, the powerful. And the Panther Party made sense because it was like through these organizings, through the survival programs, through raising the consciousness and building alliances with others, coalitions, you know, the Black Power conferences, the the uh, joining in the civil rights, joining in civil rights movement activities, but the anti-war movement, the struggles of the Puerto Rican independentistas, the Chicanos with Aslan, the, uh, the poor white folks, even in the Appalachian Mountains, it made it really feel like, man, I, this is coming together. This is really coming together. And it pushed us on. And it pushed us on. So you, you mentioned the coalition building with other ethnic groups and other political formations. I'm curious as to your experience there, uh, because one of the one of the challenges that I've I've seen play out and discussed is that you know when a group doesn't have clarity around their particular interest and their agenda, then it can be co-opted through coalition building. So I'm curious 
about your experience with that as you were working in collaboration with these other groups? I think one thing that stood out about the Black Panther Party was that we were willing to work with any other movement or formation that saw itself in a revolution or liberation struggle or even if it was in in terms of fighting for the rights of uh, uh, women, uh, the sex against sexism and things like that. Um, so what we learned, and I'm gonna tell you, when I joined the Black Panther Party, I was probably more of the black nationalist that did not want to work with white folks and didn't like white folks. And not that I had all that. And it's interesting. I don't think I had that many encounters with, as far as friendships with white folks, maybe a few. But Panthers would come to Plainfield to help us. They would kind of walk us through what it meant to be a Panther. Walking through the streets and through the communities. And um, we would learn from them like how to, um, how to discuss Black Panther politics, how to help people uh, bring up the issues that were important to them. And that was just like in the Black community. But then outside of that, we would also attend like an anti-war movement. And we had to be very clear on like uh, what's the politics of the anti-war movement and what's ours. And it was important that they know ours and that we understood theirs. But ours for us was the priority, the liberation of black people and revolution in America. Eldridge would say, you know, and talk about the uh, revolution of the colony, you know, uh, liberation of the colony, I'm sorry, and, uh, and revolution in the mother country. The interactions with white folks here had kind of forced me to confront my own narrowness in certain ways around not dealing with white folks. But then here also, New York, New Jersey, the, the Latino community is a Latino community. So you begin to meet and, and, and uh, develop relations with the Puerto Ricans, especially those of the independentista movement. They want independence. Just the idea of Puerto Rican and independence, you never even thought of that before. Puerto Rico, you never even thought of it. But now you begin to see how the tentacles of this, of this monster just reaches out and just takes so many people's lives. And then here we are meeting folks from the indigenous nations, American Indian movement, you know. Um, and then depending where you're at, if you're out in the West Coast, it's more likely you're going to meet folks from, from the Chicano movement. But it helped me to understand that our sense of nationalism must be broad enough to see others in relation to you, too, and not just be exclusively concerned about, you know, yourself or your own people. So in many ways, I had to, like, revise my understanding, some, some ways maybe even reject. And because the Panthers also uh, put out a policy around uh, the oppression of women, even at our young ages, I ain't saying we did perfect, but at least put it on our mindset that that's a concern of the revolutionary, that you do not oppress women. And so we would do the best we could on in our localities to make sure that we wasn't uh, operating off of uh, a lot of sexism. I I'm not saying that we were perfect, but I think we wanted the first movements to at least put it on the board, put it in front of your consciousness so that you know how important this is. And I, and I feel like I've been growing from that 
kind of being open, you know, to stuff I may not have saw to the blind spots ever since. So you've mentioned black nationalism and how your political view was changing then and it's transformed over time. Um, and I, I read one of your pieces, I think this was from 99, Beyond Nationalism, but not without it, uh, where you dig into this uh, a little bit more as well. Right. Um, at, even at the time that I, I wrote that, um, I, when I look back, I can see how I'm going and what direction I'm heading. In prison, I'm reading feminism, stuff around feminism for the first time, and uh, um, critical thinking and uh, uh, different things that were allowing me to critique myself in the movements that I had been involved with. Um, when I got to anarchism uh, and began to like, really studying anarchism uh like what is this thing with anarchism why is it so against authority why is it so uh um this it was something about the anarchism that was more life affirming that was more willingness to come out of the box to explore other ways of functioning that at the time coming from the panther party and, and the split in the panther party in 71 um it allowed me to look at the split in the Black Panther Party in a totally different way uh, as a struggle around hierarchy, as a struggle around Huey P. Newton and, and, and his crew having all the power in Oakland uh, and, and the chapters on the localities of the Panther Party suffering because of that, you know? And I lived in... Uh, Jersey and was able to witness firsthand the conditions of the Panther Party chapters in Jersey City and Newark. And they, they were constantly complaining because the monies that they would raise for um, uh, for the party would go to the Central Committee in Oakland and certain percentage comes back to the chapters to help them pay the bills and be able to run other programs. And that wasn't happening. And then here you got Geronimo Pratt and the Panther 13, I think at the time, and others who were getting expelled because they would critique and speak out to the Central Committee. But in speaking out, they would get expelled. So the anarchism was allowing me to see that as what happens when power is centralized, when power is, um, uh, is in the hands of a small group and it's now them that make the decisions about what is going to happen and what's not. And it always tends to just benefit them with the power. So in prison and when I'm reading these other things that is saying, man, that's here's the critique, but also saying that here's other examples of how it could have functioned and helped uh, possibly remain healthy as an organization and a movement you got to get away from hierarchy. You got to get away from the mindsets that say, well, there's a few of us, big brain, you know, ideological people and, and, and the masses of members, you just need to follow orders. And I've found that to be fundamentally wrong and oppressive itself. 
And here are these readings that are saying, yeah, man, that's what happened to many of the movements, uh, Russian Revolution, Cuban Revolution, all these other ones. And then you start to see it in the African liberation movements that all these successes that they had made, especially in terms of the role of women, began to reverse once they won, because now you got a small group of men have decided that they got to be the ones to make it. So I wanted to move beyond that. I wanted to be a part of work that would help get away from hierarchy, get away from the, the, the head of the snake can get chopped off by the counterintelligence program. And here's the body just laid out, you know, uh, vulnerable to all the forces of oppression. And because that's what happened to the Black Panther Party. But it also allowed me to see that individually we need to work on those things we have internalized of our, in our oppression. So in writing the, the Beyond Nationalism, Beyond because we got caught up into a nationalism that was very Eurocentric, but maybe tweak, tweaking it here and there. You know, we never dealt with the issues of the, the sexism involved uh, or just adopting old structures or understandings of what nation looks like. We got to be able to go beyond that, but we can never forget that our primary responsibility is the liberation of black people. And that for me means that we can't you know, you can't do without it, but you got to be able to critique even nationalism. What does our liberation need to look like in order to create really free societies wherever black folks are? They got to be really, and, and let's not just reproduce Eurocentric uh, models that we have not even considered putting on the board to have our attention. So that is me, that was me then in 90 something. And I think just now it's like, even at this point, I just feel like I keep deepening my understanding of that, you know, cause when I look at struggle now, whether it's, you know, Black Lives Matter and different things, have we, have we dealt with how we react to a Black Lives Matter that is led by Black women and LGBTQ folks? You know, have we dealt with uh, folks that are, uh, still want to uh, uh, be able to uh, have land and control land? You know, have we dealt with uh, the issues of internalized oppression? Have we factored ways into our organizing and how we deal with each other that deals with, in a sense, the shit that we have taken on by being here for 400 years? You know, so... It still goes into that because whatever happens in this country, indigenous folks and black folks, Chicano folks included, we're going to be on the bottom. And if we can't see how to get up from under this and that it has to happen at the death of this empire, we stay here. We stay in another generation. And my concern now is like, when you deal with the environmental destruction of the planet, there ain't gonna be too many more generations. So there's a sense of urgency that keeps building. I'm curious when it comes to um, anarchism, you know, what does history tell us about black folks successfully practicing um, that, that practice and that perspective throughout history, perhaps before you know, we were in this American experience. 
Okay. Um, I don't I don't think to this day you're going to have any successful uh, movements of black folks that are led by or inspired by anarchist principles or anarchist understandings. One of the draws for me, what drew me to anarchism was in, in studying how earlier African societies didn't have a state. They, they, they operated in more collective um, fashions. And even in, in those, um, like I think it might've been amongst the Igbo in Nigeria, uh, even though they may have had a, a king, uh, they also had a saying that everyone is a king. And then, they, then, then one of the examples that I have learned about in terms of one of their struggles against the British was that um, there was a certain point, this is the 1800s, that uh, the women felt that the British, uh, the men, the Igbo men, wasn't doing enough to stop this, the Brits from trying to colonize them. And at a certain point, the women got together and say, well, then we're going to step up and take over. And they, through because they had uh, kind of the kind of communal mechanisms and collective mechanisms amongst themselves, they was able to get together in, in ways that was non-hierarchical, that was more vertical and begin to develop forms of resistance against the British. One of them that was that became known was called sitting on a man. And sitting on a man was was like uh, uh, there may have been a British official set up at a certain location and he's got they got their flunky Igbo followers or uh, trying to prop up as leaders and the women would just surround them and would just it's called sitting on a man because it was just physically stopped them from being able to come out and carry out their colonial functions. And I think that we have certain similar forms of that that we can see today when you talk about sit-ins or whatever, but the women use some of their own cultural tools. And then in my being in, in Mexico uh, and trying to learn about the Zapatistas at the Southeast Mexico. And when the Zapatistas took over also, they don't go even go as an anarchist movement, but they had conscious efforts to uh, be as inclusive in their leadership as they could, and especially involving the women and all the different groups of peoples within Mayan culture. And when I saw them do that in these non-hierarchical forms, not, you know, not vertical, but horizontal, they would sit when it was decision-making time and the decisions would be for sometimes for days and it would not end until they had consensus. It was a different word that I hadn't been exposed to, consensus. And they had to, they had to come out of there with people on agreement of what page are we on? And how are we going to, going to oppose uh, uh, the efforts of the Mexican government to take this land back from us that we just took back for ourselves? And it was their own lands. And so I'm like, well, we can do that. When you describe a movement that is leader, I guess I wouldn't, would I say, would you say leaderless or that everyone is a leader to themselves? That term comes up, the leaderless term comes up, um, but also um, the understanding of leadership that 
uh, it's more provisional that it may be circumstances called for leaders and in different ways in different places different circumstances but that those people who come forward to, to that they they should not take it as they're now wedded to this for life that it should always constantly be trying to raise others to be thinking to be feeling to be uh uh conscious of the the techniques to bring in more folks bringing in constantly so there's there's not that tendency to just there's just a few and then here's your enemy who is staying up on everything you're doing, just looking for the opportunity to chop that head off, you know. But when it is horizontal, it's harder to do that. And that was one of the things about the Igbo Women's War is what it was called uh, about them. Because they were horizontal, you know, you capture a few women here and you think that you got it. But no, because they had spread it out, you know, it was harder to crush that movement. And that became very important, you know. And, and democracy, real democracy, plays a part because those who coming into these kinds of uh, uh, settings, they need to feel that you see them. They need to feel that you hear them. They need to uh, experience what it is to be in that kind of conflictual debates around which way to go or what to do. You know, that, that the messiness and all this stuff is a part of what this is about, but we're able to still work through it. And if you get away from the more, um, I want to say not necessarily narrow, naive concepts of how organizing has to go or what revolution needs to look like, because it's, it's a messy process. Brother Shanti, so when looking at uh, movements today, I have heard in the space folks discuss this leaderless movements of decentralized uh, authority. What are your broad thoughts of the effectiveness of the state of the mo movement today? I sit home sometimes depressed because I, it's like what I don't see, but then I have to, what am I looking at? What am I looking at? You know, and, and at them times where I'm feeling like, Oh, man, there's not much going on. Someone will, will call me or text me or email me, say, oh, you should check out this. You should check out that. And then I have to stop like, wait a minute. There's always going to be struggle. There's always going to be struggle. Now, I will admit I want to see more of certain things, you know, and I think a, that certain thing is really, you know, an understanding that we can't be free as long as this empire breathes, that we have to be able to envision freedom without this empire existing, because the empire is what's killing us and has been killing us. Um, but and that's on that level, because it makes you it makes you face death. It makes you face what this system will do to you if you dare stand up to it. Yet that facing death does not have to be something morbid. It, ha it really has to do with you accepting a certain eventuality that actually allows you to embrace life. The life within you, the life within others, them little kids you see in the street who are still able to smile and laugh, you know, or, or, you're, or you see that community garden popping up here, or that liberation school there, 
you know, or if there is a, 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 a march or a demo, you know, like folks ain't stopped. But what I what I see signs of and would love to see more is embracing our people. Even when there's a tendency amongst us who are more black liberation, especially old school black nationalists of excluding certain of our peoples. And I and I really do mean, you know, like those who are from the from the LGBT community, our people, you know, and what it means that we still rejected and what 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 kind of understandings are we going? That's why the nationalism, you know, that what is a man? What is a woman? And how much of that is based on Eurocentric concepts? You know, is that is that really what you want to do? Now, there's a part of that also that means that we have to let go of those things inside us that block us from feeling for other people. And for me, there's a spiritual thing in there. It's almost like saying we got to embrace the mystery of life. We got to embrace that. As we are struggling against this madness, we got to see all these forms of life as good, you know, and if we can't do that, then we shut off others. But shutting off others means we shut off aspects of ourselves enabled to and that can enable us to be freer, even in our own bodies, even in our own being in that philosophical sense. So if I learn anything from like what we did back then is that we constantly got to look for broader understandings and deeper understandings of what revolution, liberation means so that we are really, really getting to life. And and like George Jackson say, man, like the words of George Jackson is is pretty much, you know, in order to be free, we got to take this monster down. And I, I think when people hear us say that, they, they get a little nervous, but um, there's no other way out of it. Ashanti Allison, thank you for joining us on Black History Year today. Thank you so much for having me here. As we say in the Panther Party, all power to the people. To learn more about our brother Shanti Alston and his work on behalf of political prisoners with the Jericho Movement, visit thejerichomovement.com. Thank you for tuning in to another season of Black History Year. We hope you enjoyed the conversations. We hope you learned a lot. We hope you are applying what you learned in your lives and the lives of your family and your community so we can all learn from history and grow together to imagine a future where we can build a liberated world. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. 
Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but really, everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Tarek Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, and Lily Workna. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Michael L. Sessor for Lemon House and Julian Walker for Push Black. Peace.